Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together, we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility. Now, in the second series, we've been seeking out the people who are using these tools, people with the experience and depth of practice to lead us to a future where humanity and the planet can flourish. My guest today is Sarah Schlotter, on the line from Canada. Sarah's a psychotherapist and somatic experiencing practitioner with a huge depth of knowledge of both the theory and practice of what makes us tick. I first came across Sarah in an interview on the Whole Horse podcast, which is well worth listening to. There, she was able to make sense of horse behaviour in ways I had never understood before. And she linked it to human behaviour in ways that made me re-evaluate a lot of my own experience. So when I wanted to bring ideas of polyvagal theory and somatic experiencing and attachment rupture and repair to the podcast, I had a choice of either trying to learn it myself and then bringing to you what I'd read, or speaking with someone who lives in this world who works with people every day, helping them to navigate life in ways that are generative and lead to flourishing. Sarah is one of the clearest, most knowledgeable people I could imagine, and we had a long, deep dive into the theory in this podcast. And the really good news is that by the end, we decided to set up another one so that we can go beyond this into the actual practical aspects of what you and I can do in our lives as we move forward from the coronavirus. So for this first part in what will be at least a two-part podcast, please welcome Sarah Schlotter. Sarah Schlotter, welcome to Accidental Gods and thank you for taking time out of what sounds like a very busy therapeutic practice even in lockdown. Yeah, thanks, Amanda, for this time. I'm really enjoying the opportunity to get to chat again. Thank you. Yes, because we did do this before and it timed it timed badly because of the lockdown. So how is lockdown in Canada? Well, it's uh, it's interesting. I think like in many places, there's a real variance in how people are responding. You're, you have the people who are following the rules and the people who are resisting the rules and you have the people who are, you know, half-heartedly applying the rules and I think that's true just about everywhere. Is your government talking about raising lockdown sometime soon? They've just loosened um, the restrictions around construction businesses and garden centers, I guess, because it's spring. A lot of people are in their homes with nothing to do, and it's springtime, and it's the time to do gardening. And I think perhaps from a mental health standpoint, uh, there was a good reason to make that available. That's at least my therapist lens on perhaps why they loosened the restriction on that in particular. Yeah. And plants are living things. And yeah. if you've been nurturing plants all winter, ready to sell in the spring and you can't sell them, presumably they they stop being saleable at some yeah. point. So, And you're right, everybody I know is trying to grow food now, Yeah, which is good because I think there's going to be a, a worldwide food shortage by the autumn. So growing food, good thing. Anyway, back to track because I have listened to you on mainly horse-related podcasts and been so struck by the clarity of your capacity to explain really quite complex concepts of neurophysiology and how they apply in the real world to people 
and horses. So most of the people listening to this are person-oriented rather than horse-oriented, though we do have quite a lot of crossover with Alex Curlin's Horses for Future. So there are some horse people and we will go into some horse things. But first of all, I wondered, one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you was that it saved me from doing an awful lot of reading about polyvagal theory. Mm. I was on a, a worldwide webinar with Stephen last weekend that was run by Rebel Wisdom. And he was very clear about the need for finding safe space during lockdown, safety within. So I wondered if we could talk first about your take of what polyvagal theory is and how it applies, and then we can look at how we can work with that during lockdown and beyond. Absolutely. That would be a pleasure. And and speaking to the horse piece, although I have gained a lot of visibility within the horse world, because that seems to be where I'm placing my passion and my attention, the majority of the time I'm in my office with clients and doing not horse-related work. So uh, I have this, you know, this very visible stream in my life where I'm very much out there and, you know, getting information uh, to a broader audience. But most of my days when I'm seeing clients, it's human to human. Right. So uh, I just haven't put as much focus on human to human exclusive things in my sort of social media visibility. So. Okay. Well, we can do that now. That would be good. So polyvagal theory, yeah. what is it? Why does it matter? Why do we need to know about Sweet. it? Let's do that. I'll, I'll begin by saying this. Um, Dr. Peter Levine, who is a longtime friend and, and collaborator of um, Dr. Stephen Porges, who created the polyvagal theory, Peter Levine will say that a map is not the terrain, but it sure helps you get around. Sure. And so the polyvagal theory in some ways is a map, a proposed map of the nervous system and different from the one that most people know a lot more nuanced and a lot more detailed. And what I'm going to offer today is almost like a simplified guide to the map of the polyvagal theory. So this is kind of like... I'm the subway. Like a, an underground map. Yeah, I'm the, the subway or the underground map of the, which is yes. an adaptation of the actual map, which is an adaptation of the terrain. Brilliant. Okay. Because it's a rather complex theory, but at the same time, it is super fascinating. And what Dr. Porges kind of realized was we don't just have two branches to our nervous system, stress response and relaxation response. It's a little bit more complex than that. I will spare you all the history of how that came about in terms of discovering that there's more to it than that. I'll just sort of launch into the theory itself. Um, and the idea is, is that we actually have two branches for the parasympathetic nervous system. Brilliant. So parasympathetic would be what we call the relaxation response. It's kind of, again, a misnomer because it's more than just relaxation. This is rest and digest. Rest and digest and shutting down. Okay, yes. Right, which is almost like this extreme form of relaxation, which isn't really relaxed. Yeah. It's like the relaxation response on overdrive. And so the parasympathetic nervous system, according to Dr. Stephen Porges, um, is highly mediated by the influence of the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve. Now, of course, there's more going on that influences mammalian behavior, human, horse, or otherwise, than just the vagus nerve. So this is where I'll also speak to reductionism <laughs> and, you know, let's not get caught up in the fact that the vagus is everything. But it's a really interesting theory and I really quite like it because it speaks a lot to what we can do to help ourselves in our relationships and especially during this pandemic. Brilliant. So the vagus nerve is thought to mediate the, or modulate rather, the parasympathetic nervous system. It comes out of the brainstem and it connects with 
all the nerves that um, innervate the organs and musculature involved in the face. So eyes and ears, hearing, mouth, vocalizations, larynx, pharynx, right, for sound, talking, and it goes down into the heart and lungs. And that would be what we call the ventral branch of the vagus nerve or the ventral vagal complex. So basically what this does is it creates a face-heart connection. Hmm. And so you can tell that somebody is having good ventral vagal tone because their facial expressions online, their eyes are bright and expressive. They're able to communicate. Voice comes easily, right? right? And when we were, and usually this happens when we feel safe in relationship and we feel safe in our environments. And when we feel safe, what happens is that the cues, we take in these cues from our environment, from our relationships, we take them in through the parts of the body that are what Stephen Porges calls the social engagement system, right? The parts of us that are involved in social connection. That's also the parts of us that allow us to detect safety, danger, or life threat in our environment. The very parts of us that allow us to connect and communicate also the parts that allow us to detect what's going on. Our eyes and our ears and our senses. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's coming in from these places. And vocalization also gives us a sense as to what's going on. Like you can tell if someone's stressed or distressed or calm based on vocalization. And so as we take in this information through the social engagement system, that will tell the nervous system if I'm feeling safe or not. If I'm feeling safe, what that does is it lights up the ventral branch of the vagus nerve, which acts as a pacemaker on the heart. The ventral branch of the vagus connects with the sinoatrial node on the heart, which is this little pacemaker that we have that keeps the rhythm going. And so when we're feeling safe, Hmm. because of what we're taking in through social engagement, through our senses, that will slow our heart down so that we can remain in safe connection. Right. It modulates our nervous system for us. So this is what we might call a really gentle break system. Yes. And so I'm thinking it also connects to the gut and, and moves blood to the gut and gets us more into the digest phase as well. Yes. So this is this is the this is the part of the dorsal branch. So this is the second branch of the vagus. Nerve. Oh, is it? Right. So the the first branch of the vagus would be the ventral vagus. So this is supra diaphragmatic or above the diaphragm. So basically all the organs and bits and stuff that are located above the diaphragm which are involved in social connection. Right. Yep. We don't usually use our legs involved in social connection, right? We don't usually use our, our feet. We usually use these other upper parts of us involved in social. Right. So the other branch that you're talking about, which is the other part of the parasympathetic nervous system, or what we call the relaxation response, um, is the dorsal vagal response or the dorsal vagal complex. The dorsal branch of the vagus nerve is largely, not entirely, but largely sub-diaphragmatic or under the diaphragm. So it too comes out of the, you know, it's it's part of the vagus. It kind of wanders far and wide. It starts at the top and then, but largely goes down below and connects um, the heart and everything above with the gut and the viscera and uh, the colon and all sorts of things. Right. And so when we're feeling safe, the dorsal branch of the vagus nerve will be on what we call low, or the terminology we'll hear is low tone. 
dorsal response. Okay. Low tone dorsal response is when, like you said, rest and digest, right? It's a very restorative state. It's the state that we're in usually when we're breastfeeding or we're napping or, you know, we're reading a book perhaps, or um, we're just, you know, if you're into yoga, you're at the end of your yoga class lying in Shavasana, hmm. corpse pose, you know, that would be, you know, for many people, a low tone dorsal response, we hope. Yeah. <laughs> for some people, stillness is not calm, you know, and we'll get to that perhaps in a little bit. Low tone branch of the nervous system is also a very highly restorative state. It's when we have tissue repair, you know, things start to go back to working properly. You know, this is when we uh, restore and um, replenish. And so these are, these are states that are really, really important to have as well. And that too would be considered a soft break on the nervous system. Right. And, and these branches develop as a result of us learning in the world that we feel safe. And how do we first start learning in the world that we feel safe? It's usually because we have to rely on the nervous systems of our caregivers to help us feel safe. Right? When we're small, we don't really have a really good self-regulation capacity when we're very little. We rely on the, the nervous systems of the caregivers to provide us with that, what we call co-regulation. Can, can you say a little bit more about co-regulation, what it is and how it arises? Yeah, I'll give you an example um, that may make it really practical. So you, you, of course, have been around your dogs or your horses. I'm assuming you have dogs as well. As I do. So have you ever had a moment where you're with one of your animals and you start to relax, your, your breath releases a little bit, and then the dog or the horse, its yes. breath releases? Yes, I'm working on that with my, with my mare at the moment, exactly that. Yes. Yeah. And then the, you know, the animal releases and then in response to its releasing, you release further. Yeah. And you get that gorgeous, peaceful cycle where you can just watch the horizon and, and be relaxed and chilled. Exactly it. So that would be what we call, uh, that's a beautiful example of co-regulation. Right. Um, a teacher of mine, Kathy Kane, likes to call it pinging off each other. Right. Um, like sonar, right? Like, or like, you know, where it's like, oh, I ping and you ping and we ping off each other. And, and, and the opposite also happens of if I get tense, then she gets tense. And then we ping yeah. off each other the other way. You're correct. That would no longer be co-regulation, but co-dysregulation. Okay, right. That makes sense. You know, we could say co-activation and co-deactivation, right? We're okay. activating together and we're deactivating or settling together. And co-regulation occurs, you know, for most mammals, occurs as a result of these early interactions with our, our caregivers, usually the mother. Um, but obviously in this modern society, it's not always the mother. Sometimes it can also be our, you know, our, our you know, whoever the family members are that are raising us, if it's adoptive family, foster family, uh, extended family members, um, if it's, if we're being raised in a community um, animals, often it's in a herd or a pack setting, right? So we co-regulate off of the nervous systems that are around us. And so ideally in our early experiences, we're going to have, um, you know, an external nervous system or a series of external nervous systems whose ability to respond accurately to the current conditions is reliable enough that we know that we can respond off of their response. And so what I mean by that is this. So if my caregiver um, has what Stephen Porges would call faulty neuroception and what a colleague of mine in Australia, Rebecca Wheatley, has re-termed misattuned neuroception to be more trauma-informed because mm. faulty makes it sound like it's a defective. Mm -hmm. um, and so I appreciate her reframe on that. So if a, an individual, let's say a parent, has 
you know, misattuned neuroception. They have their own history of adversity or trauma, um, and they happen to be particularly anxious in the world, right? Even if objectively from the outside, there's nothing to be anxious about, but that particular person's nervous system has evolved to be more on the hyper-aroused end of the spectrum. Then as a little infant, I'm going to be responding off of that external nervous system. Right. And I, my nervous system starts to go, oh, there's something to feel unsafe about. And even if my brain is telling me, oh, no, everything is fine, the nervous system is giving another story. And so we can learn to have misattuned neuroception in a really like innocent way from caregivers who have just been through their own stuff. Wow. It doesn't have to always be because of abuse or neglect or trauma right? It can be past generations experiences that influence caregivers and then caregivers' nervous systems show up in a particular way. And then the infant pings off of that. Yes. And then we see co-dysregulation. So this is this is possibly taking us down a rabbit hole, but it, I'm really interested. So we're going to go down it. So I read a lot about epigenetics, where, for instance, if you take a mother rat who is really good at raising her, her baby rats, yes, then she raises baby rats that are also very good and very calm and very quiet. And if you take the hyperactive, dysregulated, let's say, mother rat, she raises dysregulated baby rats. If you swap them over, then the baby rats take on the patterning of the mother rat. But mm. the paper I was reading went on to suggest that there is an epigenetic change so that then if you take one of those baby rats, it's the generations thereafter will be, will be genetically different. And I am yes. wondering... How much of this, so this is back to nature versus nurture, if what you're saying is that a child or a baby rat or a foal or a puppy or whatever picks up the level of regulation or lack of regulation of the main caregiver, and that then changes the genetics. It's not that the genes are being passed on, it's that the behavior is passed on and then that is expressed in epigenetic terms. Is that a distinction that makes sense? And then is that something yeah. that you've looked at? Yeah, and I'm not an expert on epigenetics, but I do I do have a sense of the literature in terms of what they've seen is that the genes don't change, but the expression of the genes changes in future yeah. generations. And so, and that gene expression, it's almost like a switch that gets turned on or off, yeah. right? And so the gene is there, and but whether or not it's turned on or off will be the change that gets passed down through the future generations based on my understanding of it. And so what we start to see is this interesting confluence of um, nature and nurture, because you can't really separate them out, right? you know, because there are the, in, the immediate impacts of environment and relational attunement or lack of attunement and co-dysregulation, so to speak, or lack of safe haven conditions, if we were to talk about attachment theory, you know, all these things that create, you know, the nurture experience of a particular organism in present time, mm. but that current nurture experience is also sitting on and being influenced by the, the epigenetic experiences and intergenerational experiences of the caregivers who are passing that along. Yeah. So the infant has the epigenetic or potentially has the epigenetic changes on top of the nurture experience of environment that is in part due to those epigenetic changes. Right. And so you really can't to me, you can't really separate them out. I remember earlier on in psychology where we used to talk about, um, oh, is the child a clean slate, a blank slate when they come into the world? Is it nature? Is it nurture? And I'm like, all of it. You know, it's, yeah. but I think that's a bit of a false dichotomy now that we know about epigenetics. Right. 
Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And from the craniosacral work, I've, I've just started to study that. They would claim that from conception, we are being affected by the regulation or dysregulation of, of the mother. And so you're not even a clean slate at the moment you're born. Yeah. Yes, the clean slate right. might happen at the moment of conception. And, and then we could discuss that. But let, that's a very different rabbit hole. So let's carry on. We, I'm sorry, I interrupted what was a very clean flow of explaining how how it all arises. You know, it's a lo- no, it's a lovely little diversion because it actually does come back around in a really nice way because this is going to link us into the pandemic really nicely. Yes. So I'm actually glad that you invited that little diversion for a moment. Let's come back to co-regulation. So this idea of co-regulation, and again, I also want to say this to all our listeners, it's going to sound like mother bashing and that is not the goal. Hmm. This is not the point <laughs> because here's the thing too. My point is not to gaslight all the mums or female identifying um, individuals who have carried children to be inclusive, you know, who may be feeling targeted by this information. You know, this research, often this research has focused on the quote unquote mother because it is an infant that is in the mother's womb. And so therefore there's a particular mm. influence, but that's not to say that the mother is to blame. Again, mothers or mother or female identifying mother figures have had experiences that are not necessarily their faults. And so I, I would hate to come across as if we're gaslighting mothers, you know, female identifying mother figures yeah. for, you know, what's happened to their offspring because they did the best they could given their own circumstances, you know, and they didn't know what they didn't yeah. know. And so yeah. it's not about blame here, but it's a tricky line to walk around. How can we recognize the factors that have led to difficulties while also not falling into shame and blame? Sure, because everybody does their best. I am absolutely oh, yeah. reminded of Philip Larkin, who is an English poet, who had one of his most famous lines is, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They didn't mean to, but they did. Um, and that, you know, of course, that's the nature of life, is every parent is doing their best most of the time. And it's either good enough or it's not, but that's not because they weren't trying. And then it's up to us as we grow to build on what they gave us, I guess. Well, and and to grieve what we didn't get and to work through the rage, the suppressed rage of attachment shock and the bits and pieces that felt misattuned or that were not okay, like that that becomes the work we have to do. Yeah. So I just wanted to name that for your audiences to, you know, as, as we talk about this topic, it is really easy to feel judged or blamed. And that's certainly not where I'm coming from about this topic, but I I think one of the things that really strikes me about this is that our generation has the tools to talk about this and to begin to repair ourselves. And certainly my mother's generation really didn't. Yes. So we are extraordinarily lucky because they inherited generation after generation after generation of, if you look back at the lives our ancestors lived, they were very, very hard. And so, and we are the generation that can choose to heal ourselves and, and have the potential to have the resources for that. So we are astonishingly lucky in that regard. And we have you to talk us through it. So let's keep going. <laughs> let's do that. So so if I come back around to these fictional optimal scenario where, you know, we receive good enough co-regulation, good enough attunement, not perfect. It's not meant to be perfect, right? But mm. that, you know, that enough of the time we were responded to in our cries, somebody came, you know, we were able to be around at other nervous systems and feel safe. We felt protected, you know, and when we feel safe and protected and attuned to uh, and responded to in an accurate enough way, or the mistakes that are made are repaired in an, mm. a genuine way, when that happens, we develop 
a sense of secure attachment. We develop a sense of safety. And when we feel safe, our brains and our bodies develop appropriately, right? Our brains and our bodies can allocate energy towards proper development and not spend all the energy on survival. And so when we have this beautiful co-regulation process within what we call safe haven conditions in our early lives, then that allows us to go out into the world and explore the world from a place of secure base. You know, so the, the parent or the caregiver, uh, even, you know, um, the a foal's mum, you know, or the foal's herd, for instance, you know, the foal, the, the child will leave and go out in the world and explore and be creative and experiment and have adventures and then come back to the secure base of the caregiver or the herd, you know, for soothing, for protection, for reassurance, for nurturing, for nourishment when needed, and then go back out again into the world and, and we have this ability to develop this kind of um, competence and confidence because of our early experience of feeling safe in the world and having a nervous system that we can rely on and having external nervous systems we can trust. So here's where things get messy. That's not always true. Right. And, and where it gets messy is we talked about misattuned neuroception. So when the caregivers, by no fault of their own, were not available, uh, were struggling themselves... Um, didn't realize, tried to follow external advice that actually wasn't good advice, did the best they could with their parenting, you know. Or sometimes external circumstances like a child has to be hospitalized at a really young age and isn't able to be with their caregiver. There's separations or, you know, early surgeries or, you know, being born premature or whatever. There's all these different things that happen that can interrupt this process that can lead to these early experiences of overwhelm and unsafety. It's not always, again, overt neglect and abuse, although that can be true. Um, But when we have those kinds of experiences, our nervous systems learn very, very young, even in the womb, I'm not safe. Right. And so, especially if our early experiences, if we come back around to the vagus nerve, if we did not have an external social engagement system to act as our soft break so that when we have our cries, our protests, you know, and we're in that loud cry for connection and for reassurance, because that's all we have as infants. And let's say no one comes. All you have as an infant is a high amount of sympathetic gas pedal, right? High amount of activation Mm -hmm. and no real way to shut it down with a soft break. There's no low tone dorsal without a caregiver there to provide it. There's no ventral vagal available unless there's a caregiver there to provide it. And so the only ability people have to relax or to settle at these very young ages is to go into shutdown, which is what we call high tone dorsal vagal response. Right. And so that's like, you know, when we don't have low tone, I don't feel safe. I can't really rest and digest. No one's coming. I've got a high amount of sympathetic activation. There's no external social engagement system to help me settle and soothe. Then I'm going to shut down. And we see this in non-human animals too. Yeah, I'm just thinking how many shut down horses and and somehow I've listened to you talk about this many times Mm -hmm. and it hadn't really sunk home that high tone ventral vagal is what leads to the shutdown. Lights on, nobody home. Look, sorry, dorsal vagal, I wrote it down wrong. Okay, Mm -hmm. right. High tone dorsal, yeah, because this is the this is like the relaxation response on overdrive is the high tone dorsal response, right? It's it's like it's like rest and digest, but too much of it. (laughs) If I were to like simplify, and this becomes the freeze and the fiddle about and all of the all of the different ways that and the 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 lights on, nobody home, shut down look. There are many different ways of of that um, demonstrating. 
I guess. So fiddle, fiddle about, or what we might call the fidget response, would not really occur in freeze per se. Okay. If um, And I can provide some graphs. I don't know if, Amanda, you have a website where yes, we can put resources. Definitely, yes. I will send some graphs for people to download um, that come along with this that I think help explain this really well. Brilliant. Thank you. And so if we think about it, so let's go back to, I'll explain what I mean by just backing it up just a moment. So we have these three states, right? So according to Porges, we have the neuroception of safety. And when we feel safe, there are particular behaviors and functions that that feeling safe supports us to be able to experience, right? And then when we feel a sense or perceive or neurocept a sense of danger, then that is going to lead to particular behaviors and particular states that are in relation to that or neuroception of danger. And then if we have a neuroception of life threat, then we're going to have particular behaviors again and state shifts that reflect that neuroception. So life threat and danger are separate states. According to Porges, now we're not talking about the layperson definition of danger and life threat. Layperson definition, people often interpret those as the same thing, right? But in, in the polyvagal theory, danger would be, so safety would be, let's go through this, let's imagine this like a curve, a bell curve. Yep. So on the extreme left of the bell curve, we're going to start off in a neuroception of safety. So neuroception of safety, there are particular states that are available to us when we feel safe, right? Social connection, rest and digest, and even things that are what Porges calls blended states. So this is what's really cool about the polyvagal theory is that these three branches of the nervous system are kind of like dials. Mm. They they fluctuate to varying degrees at the same time. It's not just stress is on, relaxation is off, relaxation is on, on stress is off. It's not so black and white. Okay. All three branches are fluctuating all the time in terms of their function. And so when we're in a neuroception of safety, what you might see is, again, low tone dorsal. That's pretty much, you know, a lot of low tone dorsal, not a lot of social engagement, not a lot of, you know, sympathetic, then we might have the social engagement. So that might be, you know, um, spending quiet time together, social connection, various types of things there. And then we might have a blended state, such as the ventral vagal response with a little bit of sympathetic charge. And that kind of state might be play. Right? right, might be might be yeah. healthy sex, might be you know where we've got the sympathetic nervous system, the gas pedal is on, right? Because we need it for activity, movement, hmm. you know, whatever. Um, but the ventral vagus response comes in and slows the heart rate down so that I can feel safe and not go into panic because of the stress response. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That's when you get into that kind of flow state when I'm climbing rocks or something where I'm scared enough for it to be interesting, but not so scared that I can't actually hang yeah. on to the rock. There's a great example of that, right? And that might be, a fl that, and that's hard to, to pinpoint where that might be on the graph, but I definitely agree where, that that would be a, a blended state. That there is enough of something available um, to be able to experience the experience as exhilarating or enjoyable. So we've got our bell curve. We've got so our we've safety got our bell curve. right to the left. Safety. That's right. Yeah. So we're in safety. And so then as we start to neurocept a, a sense of danger for whatever reason, Right then, we start to do what I believe Jackson back in the 1880s coined uh, the term dissolution, and so our response to feeling unsafe typically will start with our most evolutionary, most recent response first, and as those responses are not available, we go to the next oldest one, and then the next oldest one, and then culminating in the most primitive one 
as all those response options become either unavailable or unsuccessful. Wow. Okay. And so as we leave the safety kind of part of our graph and we start to go up the bell curve, we end up in a neuroception of danger. So while in a neuroception of danger, people will often think, oh, that's fight or flight. And I go, yeah, you're right. And if we think evolutionarily speaking with the polyvagal theory, we have this beautiful social engagement system. The ventral Mm. vagal branch still shows up when we feel a neuroception of danger and will influence particular response patterns. And we like to call those find and fawn. Find Uh and fawn. Can we uh, unpick those a little bit? Yeah. So the find response is when I try to seek out my herd or my caregivers for support, protection, nourishment, reassurance, etc. You know, we're looking for the the supports to come. We're, we're trying to call our mums, our dads, our parents, our, our herds yeah. to us. And so the find response often can come first because that is like, oh, I'm looking for the safety. I'm looking for the what's going to be protective for me in this moment. And that is social engagement. When there are no safe organisms around us, so when the, the individual is abusive or harmful or misattuned or we've kind of written them off as being incompetent, like sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not, you know, and mm, we kind of unreliable. have this sort of unreliable attachment, right? Like this, like, yeah. oh, yeah, you're kind of great, but not all the time, so I can't really trust you, you know, um, you know, and oh, yeah, you were there for me sometimes, but not these other times, and so therefore I'm not letting you in mm-hmm. kind of experience. So when we have a perception that the supports around us, um, whether individual or communal, are not available, then we would try to um, defuse tension and risk of harm by going into fawn. So fawn would consist of all these appeasement responses that we get into to try to, you know, reduce the risk of harm by trying to tend and befriend the enemy. Right. And so there's a whole, that's a whole category of responses there, the, the fawn response. Yeah. And you can see that all around mm-hmm. us in a, so mm-hmm. many social circumstances. I would think particularly in politics, mm-hmm. we watch that happening all of the time. Mm-hmm. Scary. Okay. Yeah. And so we we have this thing that happens, and so we have find and fawn, and sometimes neither options are available, uh, and sometimes we'll go into fight or flight or flight or fight. Um, Often we flee, and if we can't flee, we fight back because, you know, Mm. we often fight when we're trapped. That can often be the response that occurs. And then fidget, I would place fidget as occurring either in the safety area of the graph because we can fidget when we are excitedly anticipating something like a birthday party and I'm walking around and I'm pacing and I'm, you know, I'm playing with my objects because I can't wait, you know. So we we fidget. Fidget would be those like sort of little displacement type behaviors that we notice, you know, that, you know, are evidence of energy that we don't really quite know what to do with. You know, and so fidget and when we feel safe is, you know, like you're bored and you're like, you know, clicking a pen because you're bored, right? Like that's, Mm. there's no neuroception of danger. I'm just bored, but safe. Yeah, so and we certainly fidget. not on your reception of life threat because we tend not to fidget when it and life threatening circumstances. Exactly. At that point, something else altogether is happening. Right. So, so this is where the state and the neuroception predict the behavior determine the behavior. So so neuroception of danger, fidget responses can happen here as well. So especially when we're not able to flee or we're not able to fight, um, either because we're confined, 
right? We're caged, we're in lockdown, we are, you know, kept in small spaces. This is often true for non-human animals in our modern society, right? With um, dogs, dogs kept in crates and horses kept in stalls and and, um, animals in the food production industry and in the entertainment industry and zoos and on and on and on. That pacing tiger that we've all seen somewhere in our lives. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so the, uh, and, and, and the pacing elephant all alone in its enclosure because there's no mm. social engagement, right? So mm. we talk about enrichment for animals and I go, it's, there's enrichment and it's like what neurobiologically, it's what are opportunities are we offering them to be able to seek and have social engagement and wake up the ventral vagus, yeah. right? Because the enrichment often involves um, environmental enrichment, which is usually sounds and smells and things like sensory and toys stuff. Toys to play with. Toys yeah. to play with. But not even just toys, but like the ability to roam and like engage yeah. with nature and engage with a herd. And that's all waking up the ventral vagus. I mean, that's yeah. all ventral vagal stimulation. Yeah. Right. So I kind of go, wow, you know, so, so when we feel danger, but we can't actually do anything to stop it, um, you know, fidget responses start to show up. So this is where we start to see things like addictions, obsessive compulsive responses, um, you know, intellectualizing, deflecting, projecting, suppression, you know, like we, we, you know, um, uh, with horses, you'll see like stall weaving and crib biting and wind sucking and, you know, uh, other animals like bar chewing and pulling at skin and pulling at hair and ripping feathers out. And like these would be these fidget responses that represent this energy towards either wanting to fight or to flee. And it's not just fleeing the source of danger. It's also moving in the direction of what I want. It's moving towards nourishment, moving towards social connection, moving towards fun and freedom and forage. Right. And so when we can't do those things, when we can't act on our need for connection, our, our need for nourishment, when we can't fight, we can't flee, when we can't find and fawn is useless also, then we fidget. Like fidget happens when we're not able to really enact a very particularly useful response. Um, so and lockdown as- is going to be full of fidgeting people in one way or another. Yes, yes. And what you were, I forget if this was before you hit record or not, Manda, but we were talking about how there are so many people buying puppies right now because they're stuck in lockdown. And almost as this sort of um, way to try to wake up their ventral vagal systems, like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so isolated. I need something to not just give me a sense of purpose, but for co regulation and for play and for all these things that we can't do. Um, and in some ways, is it fidget? In some ways, it's, is it trying to, you know, get the social engagement system back? And that's why puppies, because more than anything else, dogs give us that unconditional positive oh, yeah. regard. They just, they just love to be with us. That's right. And, and so we then love what, to be loved. Yes. Oh, I like how you said that. Yeah, we love to be loved. Yeah. But then what's going to happen at the end of the pandemic oh. when, you know, all these puppies end up needing homes because, you know, people are going to go back to work and then we're going to have a bunch of dogs who don't know how to tolerate being by themselves because... Maybe we won't go back to work. Maybe, Maybe we will manage to create a, an economic system that does not require that people go off and do their bullshit jobs that they didn't want to do in the first place. <laughs> that would be very cool. I, our government, this is a complete aside, but our government yeah. is is trying to end lockdown on Monday. Oh my um, gosh. Because, and they're going to cut back all of the money that they've been giving because, quotes they believe the nation is becoming addicted to what? the money that the government's handing out. And I think... You could reframe that as people are really enjoying the life that they've got now and they were not really enjoying it before. And maybe your role as government is to work out how to help people enjoy their lives. Oh, uh, yeah. 
it's not the way they think, but it's an interesting, mm. yeah. Well, and it's interesting because it speaks to the topic of um, basic income, like a guaranteed sure. basic income yes. um, based, based off of tax. And what, what they've found in places where they've piloted basic um, guaranteed basic income is not that people are more lazy and, and less likely to work. Mm-hmm. They're actually more motivated to work because their basic needs are cared for. Yeah, and they can be creative. They, they can, can be do creative. the stuff they want to do. That's yeah. right. And no one has had the guts to actually implement this in a major way because one because yeah. they're like, well, it's costing us money. They have no idea down the road how much money they'll save in terms of mental health care costs yeah. and hospital costs, you know, and unemployment costs as a result of paying everybody a basic income because that supports the whole society to function better. Yeah. And then when we're functioning better or our health is better and you know what I mean? Like they're not seeing the long-term potential impacts. They're just going, well, we're seeing short-term expense without the long-term goal, but that's a whole other topic. But we could do it. Let's do that some other day. Yes. 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 So let's come back. So, so we have, so we have the neuroception of danger. So we have, we're going up our, our graph here, right? And then we, when our, all our best attempts at surviving are not super effective, you know, um, then we, or they're not available, right? They're, then we go into the neuroception of life threat. Now, how Poor just describes this is typically this state of overwhelm where I'm either so overwhelmed that I'm going to die. And that often is in young children, for instance, the overwhelm that is felt when we are not soothed. Um, and our emotions are just so big and so tremendous. Um, and the, and the, the misattunements or the experiences coming from our caregivers are so big and we're so little that mm. that can create this existential experience of, I can't handle this. Like I, this is, it's, it's like this wordless, nameless sense of overwhelm. So that can be what we call life threat, but life threat also can refer to like literally physical life threat. Like I'm falling unconscious, I'm being choked, I'm hmm. lacking oxygen, I'm about to die. Like there can be that component too. Okay. Also in young adult, young childhood also, like early near-death experiences or near-death experiences throughout life would be that experience of life threat. And so some of these are, are an experience of life threat that feels life-threatening in which there is probably not an actual threat to our lives and others are there we are actually in danger of dying and so this is where it's so interesting because to a small infant you know being in an incubator not being held for mm. 3 months mm. you don't know if you're going to live or die right that's right. a very existentially precarious state and so there's no logic on board when you're an infant sure. you know we don't have a really highly developed prefrontal cortex that can no, think your amygdala just goes into total panic that's exactly right. Yeah. Wow. And we see that in the brains of people who've experienced these early traumas or these early adversities is that the amygdalas are much larger. Right. You know, in individuals who have experienced a lot of early fear and early overwhelming experiences. And so um, so life threat, according to polyvagal theory, would be these experiences of overwhelm that lead to shutdown. Right. Um, and so whether or not it's actually true life threat, like as a grown up today, you might not have uh, an actual life threat, but the nervous system is picking up on something that is very reminiscent to an earlier experience and will play out the same pattern. And is this also linked to, I know from my own past experience in therapy and, and people I've spoken to, you get, I get to the point where I feel that if I take the lid off my emotions, I will never be able to get it back on again. And it will be in some way destructively catastrophic. And this sounds like tapping back into that sense of life threat as an adult at the point where we're approaching that 
I don't know, emotional edge. That's right. And what Peter Levine talks about as somatic experiencing was a, a trauma recovery method that um, Dr. Levine created that is very, very much, I call it polyvagal, practical polyvagal theory or polyvagal theory in, in practice. Uh, and basically it is essentially how to work with some of these overwhelming states without getting overwhelmed Hmm. um, and building the window of tolerance to be able to work through some of this stuff and do what Peter calls renegotiation, which is let's not relive it and get you overwhelmed and get you shutting down again, because that's kind of a pointless sequence to keep reenacting, you know, but let's see if we can have a different experience of it. And there's, there's SC and there's all these offshoot trainings that either evolved out of somatic experiencing or, um, you know, draw in a large part from somatic experiencing. I'm, I'm reminded of um, somatic resilience and regulation. I'm reminded of deep brain reorienting, Frank Corrigan out of the UK. Um, there's all these methods that kind of draw from or evolved out of SE, which work with these states and how to work with these states in a safer way by titrating into them or going into little bits at a time. But that, again, is a whole other topic. Yes. <laughs> I so want to do that, but not just now. Let's go back. Yes. Let's go back. Yeah. Um, so this could be a, a multi-part series, and I'm happy to, sure to make a multi-part series if you like. Thank you. Um, so th- this graph, right? So we have this graph. And then, of course, if we come down the other side of this bell curve, as we come out of these shutdown responses, which you know I tend to refer to as freeze, fold, faint, feign death, and fragment. So freeze is that like, shut down or what we call tonic immobility or rigid immobility where we've got one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes at the same time, Mm. right? It's like I'm all revved up with nowhere to go. That would be freeze. Um, Fold is uh, what we sometimes call the collapsed response or collapsed immobility, floppy immobility, right? Where there's no muscle tone. So the kind of kitten response. So you pick up the kitten and it just hangs faint. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is you can have floppy immobility, however, when you have a neuroception of safety, So floppy immobility, so there's immobility with fear, which is at the top end of this graph, and then there's immobility without fear on the bottom end. So immobility without fear is the low-tone dorsal vagal response. So is that the yoga? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And that's one that we might choose, because I have in red in my notes further up, stillness is not always calm, stroke safe, stroke good. So this is fold. Fold would be fold would be the collapse, collapse response. When when it's like nothing else is working and I can't. It's just uh, the I can't response is so strong and it's coupled with fear. So this is Porges calling this immobility with fear. Right. And there's this sort of shutdown, collapse, surrender kind of response. That would be the collapse where there's no muscle tone. I'm just floppy. I'm just out, right. you know, yep. giving up. It's kind of that defeat, yep. extreme defeat, yep. learned helplessness kind of place. Yes. So many horses. Oh, so many horses and people and mm. dogs. Mm. And we go around and that just becomes the way of it. Right. And then fragment is uh, another addition I like to put up there. Fragment refers to this really extreme form of personality fragmentation or really extreme forms of dissociation. Um, dissociation can occur up here in these high states of life threat, but also can occur when we're feeling danger, like you know when you kind of disconnect and go into a blind rage. That would be an example of like mild dissociation sure. or, or moderate dissociation while in neuroception of life threat. And then we dissociate when we feel safe too. Right when we're daydreaming, for instance, okay. you know, or when you're driving your car and you don't remember the last four intersections. <laughs> okay, and are those neurologically 
Because I'm thinking then everything that falls under the realm of shamanic dreaming would count as dissociation. But I'm guessing that neurophysiologically, there's probably different stuff happening. Well, and that'd be curious. I don't know how far we've gotten with looking at the neurophysiology of meditators. I mean, I'm sure there's some literature on doing MRIs of people who are in meditative states. In fact, I believe people have done this. Yeah, gamma. They end up with a lot of gamma. If you go really deep, so you go through theta, Mm. then delta, then gamma. But I don't know beyond that Mm -hmm. what what the neurochemistry is. And no, and I'd be very curious. Yeah. But this is where this is a map and not the terrain. Sure. Right. So yeah. this is where I'm not, I'm not, I, I sound intelligent because I can talk about this stuff. But if, when you go into GABA and theta, I'm like, I don't know, you lost me. Like, I know those are brainwaves and that's about it. Okay. You know, like, I, I don't know all the neurochemicals. I don't know all the neurophysiology. I know some of it, but I know I rely more on the map of the terrain as opposed to knowing all the ins and outs of the terrain. Sure. And then recognizing when these things are happening with people in front of you, which yes. is probably more important than knowing whether they're yes. in beta or delta or gamma. Totally. So, that's yeah. why I love the map, right? And that's why, you know, some evolutionary biologists will shoot down the polyvagal theory and go, well, there's some aspects of it that have been disproven and da-da-da. And I go, yeah, but the map itself that it creates is really super predictive and helpful. Right. You know, And that's what, that's what matters to me is can I actually use it and have it be useful and effective and practical, which it is. So okay. you know, it's kind of like yes. the triune brain model where you know, that yes. idea of, you know, that was debunked years, yeah, decades ago. But it's ago. still useful. You know, it's, it's still, still useful. a useful yeah. little I still teach it with the with yeah. the coder. You know, this is not exactly what's happening, yeah. but it's very useful yes. to imagine. Exactly. I'm aware that we have about five minutes left before you have to go and see another client. So what I'd really like to do is have a look at how people in lockdown, which is probably still going to be obtaining when we release this, mm. we're in a circumstance which is unusual. I I'm really interested in what happens to small children when the yeah. parents, the caregivers are in lockdown. That might be a different podcast. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. people listening, most of whom are to some degree constrained in what they can do, there's a degree of sense of danger. I would suspect that quite a lot of us are in the neuroception of danger mm-hmm. phase at different points of the day. Yeah, And that it would probably be good if we had strategies to help bring us into a sense of safety because actually there are no tigers outside the window. It's just that the world's gone a bit weird. And the tiger is the COVID virus, right? Yeah. Like the there is a tiger, it's just invisible. Yeah. It's it's a tiny it's a tiny tiger that acts like glitter. It's invisible glitter. You can't yeah. see it and you don't know how to best respond. Yeah. And so here's this perfect storm of we have a threat, you know, a danger in the environment. None of us can see it. And so we're all feeling this uh, this desire to mount a response. And yet at the same time, the environmental cues are not there. And so we're getting this conflicting information that says, oh, I'm safe, but the world is telling me I'm in danger. And, and then you're going to have people who are going to contest that. You've got the yep. people right now who are like, oh, you know, I want to go back and get my hair cut. You know, this yeah. whole protest around. And meanwhile, I'll just drink bleach and I'll be fine. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and all the conspiracy theories. And I yep. go, well, how much of that, though, is misattuned neuroception, where we're getting conflicting information. We're seeing nothing has physically changed in the world, but we've got this invisible glitter problem, right? Mm. These invisible tigers running around that we can't see, but that we're told are there. And if you have misattuned neuroception to start with, it becomes very, very complicated. And especially if you've learned to shut down your fear response, um, because a lot of people will go into, well, everyone's overreacting. I don't care who dies. But underneath that sort of cold, cavalier kind of response is actually a lot of fear and terror. 
Right. And so, you know, and that's how somebody can often go into these kinds of reactions around why is, why are we still doing this? Why can't we just release ourselves into society? If you've had any kind of past experience in your life where you were shut down, told to do something beyond mm. your, that was not what you wanted to do, you know, you were made to go along with what other people said and how you found power in your life was to connect with your fight response. Then what we're seeing a lot of, I predict, is the people who are fighting this this pandemic response are the people who may actually have in their history some form of thwarted fight response or a shutdown response where they have learned to shut off empathy um, and judge others and judge themselves as a way of protecting against feeling things like fear and shame and disconnection right. and loss. So a lot of our politicians, particularly in the UK, and I, I'm thinking around the world, are men who are sent away to boarding school at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And boarding school is notoriously yeah. brutal. And they will have one way or another had to shut down. And so therefore they are now faced with a response that requires more emotional flexibility than they are capable of yes. bringing to bear. That's right. And they're, they're associating their response with extreme logic. But the extreme logic is, again, it's emotional reasoning masked as logic, and yeah. we trust the logic of it. But it's the same within North America also, right? We, we, I mean, Trump's history of early developmental difficulties is well known. I mean, people have written about this in right. terms of his early family origin and how early he learned how to shut down and not right. show emotion. So, I mean, we know that the connections between this, and we're seeing it play out on a very global stage. Right. But when I think about something practical, for everyone to take away from today is I think first off would be one, really just having compassion for just how confusing it is for your nervous system right now. Okay. This is a very, very difficult time. These are unprecedented times. The last time we went through this was the Spanish flu about 100 years ago. And so none of us, most of us, the majority of humans on this planet do not have lived experience with pandemics. Yep. And as you said earlier, Amanda, that said, epigenetically, if we have ancestors who did go through scary times, like the Spanish flu, like the Great Depression, like a Holocaust, um, and who have been exposed to these global conditions of fear and terror and danger and potential life threat, there can actually still be things written in our genes that have been turned on or turned off as a result of our ancestors' past experiences of similar situations globally right. um, that are playing out right now. So the responses that are happening for people can either reflect a trigger response based on their own adversity earlier in their childhoods or can be um, an epigenetic anti intergenerational response pattern that right. we're seeing. Yep. You know, and and so under these conditions of stress, you know, it's it's a little bit of a free for all. Everyone's nervous systems are kind of all over the place, which is why people are saying, "Be really gentle. Don't try to be overproductive while you're not working. It's okay to feel really sleepy because that could be that dorsal response." Yep, yep. And are we not just? I don't know about you, but I have spent an awful lot of time sleeping recently. Yeah. And I don't think that I'm particularly stressed, but my goodness, I get tired in the middle of the day. Well, and see, what's interesting for me is, and I think this is perhaps true of other mental health workers, some people are calling that there's going to be a secondary kind of silent pandemic or epidemic, loosely calling it that, which is basically all the mental health workers um, having to deal with the fallout of this, both now and after this is all over. Because right now, while the main, the frontliners are the medical doctors and the nurses and the people in the hospitals who are providing medical care, once this is all passed, 
us as therapists are still the ones who are going to have to continue to pick up the pieces and now treat the doctors and the nurses yeah. for their trauma collectively from, you know, from having had to go through all of this. And so, and we're already feeling it. So we're the silent population of people mm-hmm. who are actually quite overworked right now yeah. that are, are not really fully being acknowledged. And there's no light at the end of that tunnel because this could go on a long time. So what could this we could, do just before you have to go? People yeah. listening, is there yeah. anything they can do to self-help that will take the pressure off yes. the therapists. Yeah. Well, and 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 also just for themselves too. Yes. You know, yes. just for themselves too, right? Like I'm not saying the whole world has to accommodate the therapists because that's, of no. course, a bit of a, a, a role reversal as well that I would not want to encourage. But at the same time, you know, if we're all looking out for each other, yeah. you know, um, I think to myself, okay, one, be curious about your nervous system state. Be, be gentle with the fact that these are trying times. And based on your own experience, whether you have ha- past history of abuse or neglect, which is getting triggered today in terms of fear of lack, fear of dying, fear of loss, fear, you know, hmm. anger at being told what to do. All these responses are going to be coming up now in full force. And co-regulation is going to be so important to try to cultivate as best as we can. We're seeing a lot of co-dysregulation in couples right these days. Right. And, and we, we can attribute that to being off of work and being in the home. Uh, domestic violence rates have gone up significantly, yeah. you know, because we're at home. So these, these this pattern of co-dysregulation based on the neuroception of unsafety is huge and tremendous right now. Hmm. And we're being fed war metaphors at a time that completely inappropriate, which is guaranteed pretty much to trigger in some people yes. more a fight response and they totally. can't so it's they can't. except at home well or they're protesting and we're seeing all these anti anti-pandemic protests now because that's people m- mobilizing their fight response yeah. because of their you know so it's complicated okay. right? it's a complicated so cultivate co-regulation system. and not cultivate co-regulation <laughs> yes and and this is where maybe we do another part two because i would love to talk a little bit about how do you support co-regulation in a time of pandemic when we're all having to be remote yes because this that. is what Porges talks about that. Porges talks about, well, how do you do that? And I, I've been doing a series of webinars recently on other topics, but during the webinars, we've been doing a lot of relational attunement and somatic co-regulation. And I'll give this as an example. We I taught a training last week, five days, with people from all over the world. It was really lovely. And in spite of us all being in our respective homes countries, continents, we were able to use the technology in such a way that we had a shared experience of group co-regulation on each of the days where we were able to see each other's faces, have the social engagement, track each other's nervous systems and feel a collective sense of connection and soothing. Um, in spite of the geographic distance that's happening. And Porges recently did a webinar about the importance of social engagement during this time of pandemic to help with regulating all of this arousal and activation that's happening globally. And I'd like to see if we can talk a little bit more about the practicals of that now that we've covered the theory. Okay. If you're up for a second, I I definitely am. am. Thank you so much. I am so aware that you are you are really going to have to go. But I um, yeah, okay, I will write to you and we will set that up. That would be wonderful. We'll set that up. That'd be great, Amanda. I'd love to chat, chat again and we'll, we'll get really into the nitty gritty of the practicals of how you can do that during this time. Okay, so everybody out there in podcast land, wait for the second half. This is going to be so interesting. So Sarah, thank you very, very much. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Sarah for her vibrant store of knowledge. 
I have never taken so many notes in a podcast or written follow-up with many exclamation points so often. We will be back with part two as soon as Sarah and I can find the time to record it. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. And thanks to you for listening. We would not be here without you. If you want to visit the website, we're at accidentalgods.life. That's where we have the show notes for this and all the other podcasts, the blog, and the entire perspectives of what Accidental Gods is trying to do in terms of facilitating conscious evolution. It's also where we have the membership program with a structured training designed to bring us all to the point where we can take our place in the web of life with integrity, authenticity, and groundedness. As far as the podcast goes, do subscribe. If you like what you hear, five stars and a review helps Google to take us seriously. But if we're going to reach more people, we will do it by word of mouth. So please do pass the link to anyone you know who wants the world to be a more generative and beautiful place. And until then, see you next week. Thank you and goodbye.